0: Welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. My name is Bill Words, as always, and you got Billy Joel's song, Pressure Fading Out here in the background of this episode. Episode 118 on June 8, 2023. My guest this week is Kirk Leach. He's the executive director of the European Animal Research Association, which argues that animal research is necessary to advance medical research in Europe. You can hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode. Also, if you want to support this podcast, as always, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org donate, where we accept all types of donations, uh, euros, dollars, uh, cryptocurrency, if you so choose. Also in this episode, I'm talking to a health economist and managing director of the Consumer Choice Center, Fred Roder, about incidence numbers of lung cancer in Europe and why there are discrepancies between EU member states. But first, let's start off with this story. Tour operators fret over package travel prepayment limit. That's the headline uh, by Politico Europe. Travel operators might soon be required uh, to actually not ask consumers to pay up front for their package deals. Uh, This is if you're going on holidays and you're booking the flight together with um, a package deal on maybe a. Trip to the hotel or an excursion—all of these things, uh, prepaying uh, would actually be a bad thing. Say some organizations and travel operators explain that many of the uh, package uh, deals that uh, the, the, the the websites, such as such as Expedia or Booking, are just relaying to consumers will have to be paid upfront anyway. So if the consumers are not required by the platforms to pay up front, uh, then the platforms themselves will be asked to foot the bill, putting them under significant uh, financial strains. Politico says that the European Travel Agents and Tour Operators Associations, along with EU Travel Tech, representing the likes of Expedia, Skyscanner and eDreams, claim that while consumers won't have to pay up front, they will be left footing the original bill to suppliers such as airlines. In a letter seen by Politico, The group argued that carriers will always require package travel organizers to pay the flight component of any package in full and upfront. That's not fair, they said, because the flight is often worth more than 20% of the value of the package. Quote, this option would mean that organizers will have to provide the working capital for suppliers, placing them under an unacceptable level of financial pressure. The background on all of this, by the way, is that during COVID, a lot of travel had to be cancelled and consumers were scrambling to get their refunds and of course that was a problem i'm just not entirely sure how uh, a pre uh, payment limit uh, would really uh, solve that problem ultimately the platforms put under additional financial pressure uh, will try and offset that by charging you more uh, for uh, for that service because obviously there are contingencies there for them to plan uh, if they have trouble uh, getting the money back from from the original uh, operators. Uh, And that, of course, will make those platforms uh, less uh, interesting. Uh, And then what we end up with is sort of the relay uh, platforms that just tell you where to book and then you are left with ads and uh, lack of loyalty point systems and all of these things that consumers have really gotten used to. Feels like additional regulation that is not necessary, uh, but we'll have uh, a guest eventually to talk about this in more detail to really understand what the implications of these rules would be. Now let's talk to health economist and managing director of the Consumer Choice Center, Fred Roeder, uh, about incidence numbers of lung cancer in Europe, why there are so many differences between EU member states. So, Fred, it's great to have you back on the Consumer Podcast, and I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, I looked recently at some statistics, uh, and this is from the European Cancer Information System, uh, and it's about estimates of cancer incidence in Europe. And there seem to be quite some discrepancies between member states of the European Union. So can you explain to us how that happens?
1: Absolutely. So, first of all, it's uh, important to say that there was a lot of uh, progress in the last few decades on uh, fighting cancer, uh, med- medical innovations, uh, more healthy lifestyles, new technologies for people to be less exposed to things that potentially can create cancer. And then on the curing cancer side, things have gone really well. Um, what we're looking here at is just the incidence of lung cancer in Europe. And incidence means Uh, what percentage of the population was diagnosed with cancer in a given year. Um, So we're not looking at mortality, not how many people died, um, because the mortality numbers would also depend on how well a health system actually treats you. And obviously, given the income disparities among the European Union member states, uh, this also has an impact on the health system. But we are just looking at who and how many people got diagnosed with lung cancer. And there are massive differences. So, um, if you look at the latest data, which is currently available, which is uh, two thousand twenty, uh, you can see that, um, in average, in the European Union, um, uh, there, yeah, well, there is a very different uh, picture depending on the member states. So, there are countries like Germany or Luxembourg, or to hope countries which are pretty much on the average uh, of the EU's uh, lung cancer. Incidents, um, but then if you look, for instance, a country like Hungary uh, actually has fifty percent more lung cancer cases per hundred thousand inhabitants than um, the EU average, which is which is a massive disparity. So just neighboring Slovakia, for instance, is even a bit below EU average, and then Hungary is fifty percent above it. Um, So really interesting then to look actually which country has the lowest incidence of lung cancer. It is Sweden, 35% lower uh, or below EU's average for uh, lung cancer incidence. That is really interesting. Uh, It gets even more interesting and hopefully also will lead us to some policy conclusions when we look at the uh, male population because lung cancer is much more prevalent among men than women. So it is for a Hungarian man, it is three times as likely as for a Swedish man to uh, be diagnosed with lung cancer in a given year, three times as much, which is uh, a lot. So now, if we look at the sources or cases for lung cancer, obviously uh, there are environmental reasons, uh, also genetical ones. Um, but a major driver for lung cancer is, and the main cause for lung cancer is actually uh, long-term, the long-term effects of
0: smoking. Small interlude here. This is where uh, Fred's uh, AirPods ran out of battery, uh, but uh, we picked back up. So small interruption here. Uh, the audio ended up being better on his Mac than it was on his headphones. Even
1: before looking just at the cost of treating cancer, it's it's a long and miserable. Uh, process and patients even when they survive cancer often have to deal with long-term side effects of the treatment and the cancer itself uh, so first goal should be not to even get there to have many cancer cases and sweden shows that by having a much lower lung cancer incidence than any other eu member state and hungary has a much higher with 50 percent above average Uh, So the first thing policymakers should do is making it easier for smokers to switch to uh, less harmful, less carcinogenous ways of consuming nicotine. Sweden has embraced this for decades. The EU still has a EU-wide minus Sweden snooze ban. The numbers speak against the EU's policies. Very easy. And... um, After that more humanistic argument, yes, of course, we can crunch the numbers and look at treatment costs. But before we even go there, we we don't even need to do this. Um, Obviously, it would be cheaper because people just pay for their own safer nicotine products and don't end up uh, in uh, expensive lung cancer care. But even before that, we should want to prevent that people even get cancer or the likelihood value. Because it's a multifactoral thing cancer. So we probably will never fully wipe it out. There are also genetical reasons and other reasons why people contract cancer, and maybe some reasons we don't even know. Um, but there are some easy fixes. More than a two-third of lung cancer cases uh in, in Western countries derive from uh, smoking combustible cigarettes. There are alternatives. Sweden without banning smoking, and by just allowing snooze and other. Uh, reduced risk alternatives was able to uh, push their smoking rates down below five or around five percent this year uh, which is a great success and if we have the same conversation in 10 years probably we see even much lower lung cancer rates in Sweden um, because it takes a few decades of changed behavior and lifestyle or bad lifestyle to actually contract cancer.
0: Next up, we have Kirk Leach. He's the executive director of the European Animal Research Association. And we talked about animal research, the ethical implications and the realities for medical research in Europe if a ban were to be imposed. Run us through uh, your work, your advocacy work, and also um, sort of the different applications uh, that, uh, that animal testing has in medical research to give people a bit of a picture here.
2: Sure, so I'm the executive director of the European Animal Research Association, which is a not-for-profit association set up in 2015, a small number of institutions. Now we have, I think, 150. We're now a global organisation, so we um, give advice, have members in, I think, five continents. Um, So we're a communications and advocacy organisation. So the use of Animals and Research, I think you could break it down the following ways. One is kind of regulatory testing. So any drug that's going to go into kind of human trials, um, just about globally now needs to be tested on two uh, animals before it goes into human trials, really for safety and efficacy, to make sure that the drug doesn't kill the the patient and works. but actually a lot of animal research uh, I like the term research rather than testing because testing conjures up a certain kind of image of you know beagle smoking cigarettes or what have you um, actually takes place in publicly funded research institutions and that's what you might call basic or fundamental research which is trying to understand, expand human knowledge isn't necessarily going to lead to a breakthrough in in cancer drugs i mean somewhere down the line it may do but it's often just expanding human knowledge um yeah that's why animals are used in in biomedical research where mammals animals used in research are mammals so there's a a logic to it
0: right and sort of um for for those uh, completely new to this because you know what happens often when we see news stories is um well, we see mice and, and, and rats, uh, but then there's also those more controversial stories that include uh, monkeys, for instance. So um, what, what range of animals are we talking about here? So if you look at Europe, um, you know, I mean, from a regulatory point
2: of view, um, countries have to account for their animals used in research. And for historical reasons in the US, they don't count mice and rats in the kind of statistics. But the EU sets itself as having, I guess, the highest animal welfare regulations in the world. That's how it presents itself. And so all animals that are used in procedures are counted. So in the EU, um, about 98% of all animals used in research are either um, rats, mice, or zebrafish. I mean, most people don't know what a zebrafish is. It's not a black-and-white striped fish. Um, it's It's a... A really beautiful model for research it's transparent for about the first six weeks or months of its life so you can see you know it's its heart its lungs uh, its physiological system so they're a really beautiful model for research so they're the vast majority of animals using research primates and dogs which as you say are probably more controversial or likely to engender some kind of public debate are uh, I mean, monkeys using research in Europe at the last count were 0.05%. So a very, very small number of of primates using research, mainly um, macaques. And they're used in particular areas of research um, uh, to do with neuroscience, uh, biologics, which is kind of big cancer drugs, or vaccine research. So if if you look at the last three... COVID nineteen vaccines that were kind of historically sped through development. They were all tested on monkeys for safety and efficacy before they went to kind of human trials. So, and dogs are used often in toxicology studies, but also basic research. So, they are a small amount of the numbers used, but are likely to gather the hackles of people who are opposed for whatever reason for animal research. And you know, it's, it's irony. you know, if you go home tonight and you find a mouse or a rat in your kitchen, most people will either shoot it away or kill it. Um, whereas if you use a mouse in research in a laboratory, you can't just kill it. You have to you have to just be part of the project license. You have to explain why the animals are being used. You have to count for their death. You have to write it all down. So it's it's not as kind of frivolous as say, being in a in a. Um, a mouse found in your kitchen or something
0: you know and i, and I think there might be the, the the lack of education maybe that people have a you know a view on maybe sometimes stemming from uh, movies uh, horror movies and so on where they see the evil doctor doing uh, uh doing uh, experiments on animals i think a lot of misconceptions might be coming from that and you mentioned something else which is that europe the european union prides itself at, at having the highest animal welfare standards um has that culminated in, in regulatory threats now as well uh, for animal research? So since 2012, there's been a kind of
2: pan-European legislation that governs animal research. I mean, the idea was to create a level playing field, so that if investment or companies wanted to invest in Europe, they wouldn't particularly have to change their projects if they moved from France to Germany to Italy, kind of thing. So there's been like a level playing field. Um, but ever since then... Unsurprisingly, those people who have a, a moral or philosophical, ethical opposition to animal research have attempted to restrict through legislation the, the, the use of animals in research. Um, and so so currently there's a big debate within the European Parliament, spurred a bit by a vote in 2021, where around 98% of uh, parliamentarians voted to speed up The end of animal research i mean the legislation is really interesting i mean it's it's rare to come across something like this so written into the legislation is the the belief the hope that animals will no longer be used that's written into legislation so in a sense science is theoretically moving towards a position an undetermined position when animals will no longer be used um and and as that's there, it acts somewhat as a kind of uh, a, a seduction or a kind of come on to those who are opposed to animal research. So if you can essentially prove that the science is there now, you know if you can prove there are safe and efficient alternatives to animal models, why are we waiting to some undetermined point in the future? So there's a constant attempt by um, <coughs> opponents in the parliament and outside the parliament to speed up the end of animal research. And I think one of the problems has been is that, you know, historically there have been, you know, groups who are militantly opposed to animal research, you know, in the US and in Europe. Less in Europe than in the US, but you you did have some kind of nasty campaigns, which the Americans would call it terrorism, we'd call it extremism, you know, would verge on... Kind of nasty activism and that created a slightly kind of chilling effect is that researchers and research institutions were quite reluctant to be open about these animals and research in case they um attracted the attention of these people so it meant for a long period of time this is why era was set up my organisation was set up is that for far too long there had been often a a one-sided negative narrative in society about these films and research and you mentioned movies and films that played its part in it was that because the research community was reluctant to provide factual information you know uh, even emotional information about the benefits of animal research quite often regulators and the media and the public often only heard the negative sides of it you know the animal research is torture and the benefits of animal research don't come to humans and so the European Parliament is a good example where it's often populated by people who, you know, probably have only ever heard one side of the argument, which is that, you know, why use a rat to or a mouse to test drugs on humans? There's a narrative which says, you know, humans aren't 70-kilo rats or something. You know, so why why are we using a rat or a mouse kind of thing? And so... Part of your job is to encourage private and public research to be more open and transparent about why animals are used, give examples of the benefits, and I, I, you know, I, can, I can list them, give, give a, examples of where animal, animal models are no longer used because science has developed a way to provide an alternative. But also, to be honest and frank, that we can't promise to phase out animal research in the next 5, 10, 15 years because the science isn't there and it will be disastrous for patient health
0: to, to do so. And so uh, is it possible to quantify what the effects would be if animal research was, was genuinely phased out? Um, what, can, can, we, can, we, can we say what it would slow down or what, what, what we possibly couldn't do in the future?
2: Well, I mean, just this this past week, there have been two quite interesting studies being produced about drugs which can help um, deal with some of the kind of terrible diseases. And I often hesitate to do this because I'm not suggesting that these are kind of wonder drugs and that these problems are going to, you know, uh, disappear overnight. And the public is often rightly slightly jaundiced about, you know, this is the drug that's going to cure cancer or this is the therapy that's going to get rid of Alzheimer's. But, you know, if you take Alzheimer's, for an example, um, there's a drug that was, that was released l- last week called Lamanabab. Um and it's basically not going to cure Alzheimer's, but it slows down uh, Alzheimer's to, to a great extent. You know, in the US, there are kind of 6 million people suffering from Alzheimer's, in the US, And the prediction is going to be 13 million uh, in a few years. And dementia is a terrible disease. You know, it affects memory, language, behaviour, um, problem solving. And this drug slows the process of the development of Alzheimer's by t- 27%. And it comes from an antibody developed in a mouse. So it's an antibody developed in a mouse, which is then humanised and went into kind of human trials. And... You know, at the moment, you know legally you can't use an animal if there is a non-animal alternative. So if you, if no matter who you are, if you say, look, we're going to use an animal in research, um, this is the purpose. The first question is asked is, well, is there a computer model or is there an alternative in existence? Um, and for this one, you couldn't get the, the go ahead to do it. So if animal research was was um, forbidden or restricted. Then that would be an example of something which couldn't, you know, couldn't happen. Currently in Europe, this is a good example of what may happen. So currently in Europe, we're, we're suffering a significant problem about the use of primates in research. So, as I so said before, small amount of primates are used in the bigger scheme of things, but there's a global shortage due to China's uh, export ban. So, as in many areas of the world, China is the world's leading this. And it's the world leading breeder of primates. And at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, it decided to uh, ban all exports of primates. Um, you could say initially that was fair enough because who knew much about COVID? Uh, so they, they banned the export of all um, animals out of wet markets and live animals out of China, which impacted on the US, who imports around 30,000 primates from, the, from China, uh, but also in Europe. So now, um, there's a global shortage of primates for research, challenging for their own purposes. So what does that mean? So it means that if you are trying to use a primate in a study, say in Europe, and as I said, they're particularly useful for neuroscience, biologics, vaccine, vaccine research. In the past, you, you, you'd need to book, book in with a company to do this research 12 months in advance. Now it's like three and a half years. Um, you know if you're a big massive global pharmaceutical company you can possibly ride that cost and ride that delay but not all will but if you're a small medium enterprise maybe developing a drug which might use less primates and research you can't get the animals here then your research will go somewhere else you'll, you'll take your research you'll take the, the investment somewhere else, it might not even happen. So I think that's an, like an example of what would happen without, without animal models. Um, you would have to, be, it's, it's wishful thinking at worst, and naive at best, to believe that just around the corner, we have all the alternatives to animal models. Um, because they're just not there, just not there. And People who are against animal research treat it as a kind of a black and white thing. You know, they'll, they'll show, well, look, here we developed an alternative to an animal model, um, why aren't we doing it everywhere? And it paints research as a kind of conservative and lazy and you know, have vested interest in using animals. So I think the, the regulatory pressure is,
0: is really significant. And as you say, it is it is fueled by a, a, a certain activism that, you know, a lot of us have seen because it definitely makes for news footage uh, when people protest in, in, in front of uh, medical research facilities. And this is the last thing. This is about as much time as we have. So I have this one last question to you is, have you personally had uh, conversations with people at these protests and uh, if you have or if you've tried to engage with people who are very staunchly against uh, animal research what is your pitch what do you tell them
2: well it's it's interesting so in the kind of the whole arc of opposition animal research you'll have groups who are against animal research but who would say well look as it's taking place and there are no alternatives. We want the greatest animal welfare protection. You want bigger cages and, and regulations which put the animal first. But at the end of the arc, you'll find groups who have such a, a kind of misanthropic view of the world. They see humans as the problem. So I've actually debated some of these people who essentially say, well, why don't we test these drugs on prisoners? Or pedophiles, or old age pensioners—you know—they—they—you know—they see—they see humans as the as the kind of problem. So in that whole arc of, of something, it's—you know—the the one side you can talk to another and have, and have a, a rational conversation with. It's like it's like I'm not am not a believer in God, but it's like believing with people who believe in God. And you're trying to convince them it's impossible. They have a they have a different moral universe or so different worldview kind of thing. And even when you provide them information, which is, you know, any drug that anybody in the US or Europe takes has been tested on two animals before it goes into human trials. Um, the COVID-19 vaccines, which we've all thankfully helped, you know, um, get the world back on its right axis. You know, um, they were all tested on primates and hamsters and mice before they went into human trials. So you have to make a decision what's what's more
0: important your your grandmother or a mouse. Well that would that would make for a counter protest sign uh, for sure. In in any case uh, this is as as much time as we have for today Kirk Leach, thank you so much for joining the consumer podcast uh, and one more thing where can people find out more uh, about your work? Yes so uh, era website
2: which is era.eu uh, and uh, I'm on. ERA has, I think, 18 Twitter accounts across Europe, with different languages. So we're, we're all over kind of socials. So, um, yeah, please contact us if you want more information about us.
0: Do go and check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Kirk Leach on Twitter at Kirk underscore E A R A. So that's ERA. That's the European Animal Research Association. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice CEO. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wertz and I'll see you on Thursday. You have to